So, so we're going to be talking about David's last words here, final words, like in a good old Western movie, right? Any last words? All right. So it starts off this passage, and we're going to be looking at these seven verses, and um, you know, last words, they carry some gravity to them, don't they? I mean, some, some people's last words, I was looking at famous last words this week, and I couldn't really find anything profound, to be honest, so I'm not going to talk about them. But um, sometimes they carry weight. In Scripture, when you read about someone's final words, a lot of times they carry a lot of weight. Um, you know, for example, Jesus' last words. When you hear about Jesus' last words, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, you know, and then he ascends into heaven. It's like, wow, you know, those words meant something. And here, these words mean something. These are King David's last words. Verse 1, chapter 23 says, now these are the last words of David. And then it goes on and it talks about how David's remembered. Verse, uh, verse 1, the second part of verse 1, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. You know, I, I uh, have been given a lot of time this last year to think. <laughs> I during COVID, one of the things I did during COVID was I started a new business. And I've been taking a little more than a year out of vocational ministry. I'm not getting paid to do ministry. I've um, taken some time away from leading and um, just doing some of those things. I needed some time to kind of get some space in my head and, and get, get some priorities in order and those kinds of things in my life. Nothing, nothing too bad, nothing scary. Just need a season like that. You need those every once in a while. <laughs> and um, you know, you look at the Apostle Paul, and he was planning churches, and he had to take time to go work and make tents and stuff in between church planning projects and raise up new leaders and meet new people, and, and I guess that's kind of the season I'm in right now. And what I've been doing is I've been wood, woodworking. So woodworking is in my family. I, I, I'm like third generation woodworker. I, I don't know if my great-grandpa did woodworking. I know he was a farmer, but um, anyway, third generation woodworker, my my grandpa used to, he, he helped even build the Grand Coulee Dam. Uh, my dad, I grew up with him. He, he built custom homes, designed them, went from design to handing off the keys. We, we did the whole entire thing, built houses. And so I've taken up woodworking um, kind of in my adulthood. You know, knew how to build houses. And this is really the first time that I've taken time to focus specifically on woodworking. But what I love about working with my hands is, you know, when I'm, when I'm making a cabinet or making a piece of furniture or um, the other day I made a pipe for someone. <laughs> anyway, uh, then uh, what I love about that is I get so much time doing mundane activity that I can just think and reflect and pray. And so I'll be sanding for, you know, three, four hours straight with my random orbit sander, just going back and forth, real exciting. But I'll be thinking about things, and I'll be kind of reflecting on, you know, last year of my life, or the last, you know, several years of my life. And I've found my thoughts a lot of times over this last year, maybe it was COVID, I don't know what it was, but directing toward my own death. Nice warm thought for Sunday morning. <laughs> but I, I don't think it's the worst thing. You know, um, the Puritans used to write about this, about how, the value of reflecting on your own death. I think when we go to a funeral and we hear a eulogy of someone, it causes us to reflect on our own lives and our own path that we're on and what we're doing, how we're using our lives, you know, to the benefit of the world. Hopefully, God's using us for that purpose. 
And here you see in David's words, you see these last words. It starts off, I love the description before it actually gets into his words. It kind of is like a eulogy. It talks about who David was and how he's remembered. And this is a pretty flowery description of David. You know, if you look at this verse 1, it, it's, it's nice. I mean, oracle of the son of, of David, the son of Jesse. Jesse is kind of came from a common family. He was the runt of the litter. Remember, they, they brought all of David's brothers in to see who was going to be the next king. And, and then they said, oh, we got one more. If these guys aren't it, he's out in the field tending sheep. Oh, that guy? And so they brought David in and humble little kid, he became the king. It was amazing. Son of Jesse says that he was the oracle, of the, this is the oracle of the man who was raised on high. And I love that because it shows that even though David was humble, and we know that this author, even though he gives a flowery description, eulogy of David here, we know this author knows he wasn't all, all great. <laughs> I mean, he talks about some of David's darkest, darkest seasons. What I love is it says that he was the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And God does that sometimes. He uses the most broken people and the most humble of places and people and circumstances to show his greatness. We definitely see that in the life of David. Whenever I think about my, my own death or my own life, my death in the light of my life, I always think, yeah, what am I going to accomplish? Who am I going to be? How are people going to remember me? And I have to say that over this last year, um, it, it's, uh, there's been a shift in my thinking. Only something I can probably attribute to the grace of God and his goodness toward me. But I've gone from thinking in my life, what do I pursue? How do I become something? Um, you know, even though it's been good things, like I've wanted to go into ministry ever since I was 14 years old. And I've wanted to be a church planter, start new churches and be a missionary ever since I was, you know, my early, early 20s but it's always been a pursuit of those things. My identity's been wrapped up in those things. Even other good things like being a father or being a husband, all good things, important. Definitely want to pursue those things. But what I found the change and the shift in my mind is that nothing really matters in my pursuit unless God is behind it. And that might sound trite, maybe a little cliched, but I think God's been good enough to allow me to go through some circumstances <laughs> and maybe even challenge some of the beliefs I've had and will continue to do that, I assume, for the rest of my life so that I can become more dependent on him. And so the question for me hasn't become who will I become, but rather who is God? Who is he in my life? How has his greatness been shown? And I'm growing in that and I continue to grow. And that's really kind of the Christian life and we see that in the life of David. And then he goes on, he says that uh, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. David's last words were God's words. Isn't that amazing? And I think I, I've thought before about, I wonder what my last words will be. Have you ever had that thought? You know, I always imagine myself laying on, I used to imagine myself laying on, you know, some bed, you know, if I didn't die in my sleep and laying there and my, my grandchildren and my children and my wife and you know, if God's really good to me, my great-grandchildren, and they're all around looking lovingly at me as I go say something extremely profound and then breathe my last peacefully, drift off into eternity. And my great-grandchildren looking at each other, oh, wasn't great-grandfather wonderful? And my children are like, oh, yes, he's always profound like that. The things he would say to us growing up were just amazing. <laughs> I... <laughs> 
I don't know, man. Like, the more I, I hear what I say and the more I see what I do and where my own heart leads me, the less I want that to be true. The more I want God's words to be my last words. I hope, actually, I hope my last words are not, because ah! <laughs> I'm getting hit by a truck. But I think that if my last words were God's words, that's what I want to pursue. And, and this is what's happening with David. He has the, the incredible gift of being able to speak God's words. This is, th- we live in a culture, I think, that's consumed with the phrase, I think. I think this. I think that. Well, I think. And God's people instead should be living by the phrase, God has said. So that even in our dying moment, the first thought that comes to our mind is, what has God said? How has God spoken? Who has God shown himself to be? We have this incredible gift in, that God has given us that he actually has told us what he, sa- what he thinks, what he thinks. We know what he said. He's given us his word in scripture. I mean, the, the most foundational way we know what God says and who he is is through his word. And as we look at the world around us, you know, we've got things like, like the church that, that affirm those things and who God is. And we can go to each other and we can encourage one another and you know, like the scripture says, even when we sing songs, those are, those are songs we're singing to God, but they're actually songs we're singing to one another. And when we sing, we're reminding one another of the truths of God. And so sing out, even if it's not pretty. But then we look at the world around us, we see the incredible mountains and God's creation. And man, these, this last week, waking up in the morning and you go outside and you see that just vibrant blue sky and you know it's going to be a good day because it's June and it's not going to be over 80 degrees. It's just awesome. God verifies his, his word and his creation and the things around us. And we have this incredible 2,000 years of church history that we can look back on and we've got traditions and practices and, and things that we've carried with us through the centuries that help aid us in reminding ourselves of who God is and what he's done for us. God has made it very clear who he is and what he's done and what he demands. God's spoken. I pray that God would be kind enough to us to, keep, to, to, to help us not go the way of our world more intently toward the idea of I think, but rather toward the idea that God has already spoken. God says, and this is what David's doing here with his last words. Now, in these last words, what you're going to see is, is he gives a contrast between, between two different ways. And these two different ways, well, the first way that David's going to talk about is a way that's in covenant with God. There's a way of living. There's a way that your life can go. There's a pursuit that you can have that is in line with the covenant of God. And the second way is a way of destruction. It's a way that's consumed with fire. Not a very happy thought. <laughs> now, The incredible thing is that God, by the power of his spirit, has given some of us faith to believe and strength to walk in the first path. We understand the truth of who Christ is, and that allows us to walk in the first path. Our sinful nature and our humanity and the desires of our world are descriptive of the second way, the way of fire and destruction. And I'm going to explain, we're going to see what, what, what that looks like, what that means. So let's look at this first way in covenant with God. There are two ways. This first way, Jesus talks about this. He talks about the contrast between these two ways. And maybe you remember this if you've read through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the narrow way and the broad way. And this first way, the way in God's covenant, he refers to as the narrow way. 
He says, choose the narrow way. And he says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There's something about this first way that's not easy. Those of you who live the Christian life, you know, I think we talked about this last time I was up here. <laughs> that a lot of times, many of us who were saved were told, oh man, you're gonna, if you come to faith in Christ, everything's going to get great, everything's going to be easy, and you're going to have your best life now, right? The problem is, <laughs> that's not usually what happens. All you have to do is read the book of Acts, for example, in Scripture. And you find out that most of the men that follow Jesus, the people that follow Jesus, had an extremely difficult life. They, they continued to be faithful to God and love him and serve him, even in the midst of severe persecution and incredible circumstances like that. Life doesn't always get easier. So then we're left with the question of what is the point of life then? If, if, if the point of life isn't me being you know, happy and enjoyable and loving every moment, what is the point of life? Because doesn't our world teach that? The point of life is that you get the most out of it. <laughs> and I love that this is where he goes. He, he talks about that those who are on this first way in covenant with God are pursuing righteousness. They're the people who are righteous. They're, he says that they're just. He says when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. You know, last week we talked about justice. And you want to know what justice is? It's living in the fear of God. It's understanding who God is, what he's done, and how that makes you who you are. You know, Thomas Aquinas uh, was an incredible Christian uh, thinker, philosopher, theologian, back in, the, I think it was the 12th century. Anyway, um, he was an incredible thinker, and he, he sat down and he said, I want to take everything I know, everything I've thought through, everything I've learned about according to my faith and the world around me, and I want to try and summarize it into one written published work. I mean, can you imagine trying to do that? <laughs> Take all the mysteries of the world and history and eternity and combine it down to one thing. And he did this, and it's called his Summa. And in this Summa, he wrote, it is full participation in divinity, which is humankind's true beatitude and the destiny of human life. That the human life is not, first and foremost, about our enjoyment. It's not about, you know, like you hear getting the most out of life. The first and foremost thing and the, the greatest purpose that we have is to participate in divinity, to participate with God, to, to have union with Christ, communion with him. That's the purpose of humanity, he says, when it's all summed down. And you have David here in his last words doing very much the same thing. He's saying, what really matters in life when you stand back and look at it, and I've been through a lot, we've seen it all. He says, what matters is God. What matters is his covenant with us. He goes on, he says, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. I just love that imagery of this way being something that gives life and brings life. He says, if you really want to be given life, give your life away to God. Serve him, love him, take the narrow path that so few are willing to take. The travelers on this path are the righteous who are living in the fear of God. Now, the fear of God 
is, a, is an interesting concept. I mean, you read it, it, Scripture talks a lot about fearing God and what it means to fear God. Read through Proverbs sometime, and you'll read multiple summaries, descriptions of what the fear of God looks like. But basically, it's this. A lot of you have maybe heard the fear of God described this way to you. We should fear God so that we can serve him and live for him. Here's what it means to, be, to fear God. Don't be afraid of him. It's not being afraid of God. It's having reverence towards God. Any of you heard that? The fear of God is, just, is merely a reverence. Well, fear of God definitely involves reverence, but let me make no mistake about it. When you go in, and if you can translate the original language, the, word for, the Hebrew word for fear is, translates to fear. <laughs> translates to like an afraid type of fear. Like you are afraid of God. Definitely entails reverence and all the other things, but there is a, a, a thing that we, there is an aspect to it that we do fear God, that we're afraid of him. Now, there's a lot that's spoken about fear in our culture these days, right? And we hear about, I hear about it on the news all the time. The news, I hate the news, man. The news is horrible these days. It's just completely changed. I don't like change. But, um, <laughs> but you hear a lot about fear. Oh, he's just trying to make him afraid. He's just operating out of fear. Oh, the Democrats are just trying to make him fearful. Oh, that Republican is just trying to operate out of fear. And you hear a lot about fear. We shouldn't be living out of fear. But scripture here says we gain the most life when we live in the fear of God. That's where we experience the greatest life, the greatest light is in fear of God. There's something about this fear that's not debilitating in the way that you and I tend to think of fear a lot of the time. Let me give you an example. So I love to sail. Um, the early service, I said, I love to sail so much. My wife even gave me a shirt that I'm wearing today with little sailboats on it. But then someone pointed out to me afterwards, those aren't sailboats. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They're motorboats. I just saw the shirt and went, boat. <laughs> but I love, I love sailing. Sailing has been so much fun. I've been sailing for about five years now. Bought an um, old, old 1968 broken down sailboat four years ago for like 2000 bucks. And it hasn't sunk on me yet, so that's good. But it, I've been restoring it and working on it slowly but surely and learning more and more how to sail. And it's been so much fun. And whenever I go sailing, I like to bring people along with me. I like to bring friends or maybe other church planters or my family if they'll go with me. And um, I, love, I love it. I sit down and I have a routine that I go through. I get everybody in the cockpit of the boat and we all sit there. And I have a little spiel that I give them. And the spiel is a safety spiel because... It's important that you're safe on a sailboat. <laughs> and I start off by telling them this. I say, the number one rule on a sailboat is what, Lily? Don't fall, don't fall off the boat. It's not put on a life jacket. It's not know where the fire extinguishers are. It's not understand where and how to use an anchor, although those are very important for safety. The number one rule of sailing on a sailboat in the Pacific Ocean, especially, is don't fall off the boat. You fall off the boat on a sailboat, you're dead. That's what I tell them. And they look terrified, as they should. <laughs> because here's the thing. A sailboat is not like a motorboat. For one, in a motorboat, if you fall off, kick it in reverse, back up, go over, transfer the person over, bend down, pick them up, they're in the boat, they're safe, they're good. All right? Hopefully if they didn't knock their head and they're not drowning, they're fine. In a sailboat, you have 
a giant piece of lead going down into the water, and my boat goes down four and a half feet, that weighs 2,000 pounds made of solid lead. That puppy's hard to turn around. The other thing is you've got the wind propelling you. It's not a motor that you can just kind of kick in the reverse. I can't just command the wind. I'm not Jesus to reverse and start going backwards so I can rescue the person. It takes forever to turn around. Then, as you turn it around, the Pacific Ocean has these waves, like incredible waves, and sometimes there's lots and lots of wind, and it's hard to see, and you might lose the person in the waves. So you've got, while you're turning this giant boat around with a big 2,000-pound ballast going down into the water, you've got to turn this boat around, keep an eye on the person, get ready with the safety ring to throw to them. If you fall in the water, you're probably dead. <laughs> so I tell people, the number one rule on the boat is don't fall off the boat. Now, I tell them that, yes, I want them to be afraid of falling off the boat. I definitely want them to be afraid of falling off the boat. But I tell them this, not so they can have a miserable ride being scared of the water, scared of falling off the boat, but so that they can enjoy the ride. So they can get the most out of their time sailing together. So that we don't have to go through a horrific time of trying to get them out of the water. We want to enjoy the wind on our face and the splash of the water when you hit a wave. And, and, and maybe if you're lucky, you see a bunch of dolphins. Ooh, that's fun. My wife, that's my wife's favorite part. <laughs> but it's for their enjoyment. There's a good kind of fear that's life-giving. And this is the kind of fear that we talk about when we talk about the fear of God. It's, a God. it's a fear that's meant to give life. Yes, we know who God is. We understand what he can do. We understand that our eternity, and we sang already, salvation is the Lord's. It's not ours. We understand that he holds these things in his hand, and he has the power to give life, and he has the power to destroy that should give us some amount of fear. We should be afraid of God, but at the same time, we're not afraid of a God who's out for our destruction. We're not afraid of a God who wants to make our life harder. He, he wants to, he's a God who's completely loving, completely trustworthy. He, he's a God who's completely holy and right in everything he does. And so we can put our fear in him knowing that he knows best, that he has the best, and that life can be lived for him in trust. It's a gift God's given us, is the fear of God. Now, the fruit of this kind of, this kind of, um, the, the fruit of this first way, covenant with God, is light and life. And I love that he talks about the sunshine coming up in the morning. Have, have any of you been waking up early during this summer? I know Jeff Ludington was at the early service, which... They got psyched out when I got up here. They were like, oh, we thought we were getting Jeff. But, <laughs> but Jeff loves to wake up early in the morning. I know. It. He's like, sometimes he's like, dude, we want to meet for coffee? And I'm like, not with you. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, it's going to be like 5 a.m. or something. I don't do 5 a.m. <laughs> but Jeff, but if you do get up in the morning, sometimes I wake up early in the morning just because I, I have trouble sleeping in the morning sometimes. But you see the sun come up and you see the sky turn from this, this black in our situation, there's light pollution, so it's not quite black, but it's black. It turns into this dark, 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 dark blue, and then the gradient of the sky starts changing, where down the horizon, uh, uh, you see th this dark, and it starts coming up. The light starts coming into the darkness, and before you know it, the sun's in the sky. It's shining brightly. Everything around you is beautiful, especially this time of year. And if you have blue eyes like I do, you're almost blinded and have to go get your sunglasses because <laughs> then you won't be able to see. It's, this is how the fruit of 
those who fear God is described. This is what the life is like. It's like light coming into darkness. It's like vibrance coming into a situation that was dark and unknown. And this is what David's getting at. He's saying that that's not only the experience of this person, the just person who lives in righteousness, but it's, it's actually what they bring to the world too. He says when someone leads in this, the people around them experience that kind of light. And it's like the sun that comes up uh, shining forth on a cloudless morning. And he says it's like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And I, I was, the first time I read this, I was like, wait, he's just talking about sun. Now he's talking about rain? I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and so I don't particularly like rain. Um, I had rain like every single day, and it was that dark, dreary, you know, just oppressive rain. It was gray, and your bottom of your jeans are always wet, and you're, it's just miserable. <laughs> Nine months out of the year, but there's those two or three months that are awesome. But I grew up, I don't like rain. And when we moved to Southern California, I can remember I, I used to run to the window every morning for like the first two years we lived here. And I, my, I, the first thing I do, I wake up, run to the window and go, is it sunny out? <laughs> and I see the blue sky be like, yes, it's sunny. Because you got to understand in the Pacific Northwest, when you, if you grew up there, like, I mean, a sunny day is like, I mean, you don't do anything. You quit work for that day. You just skip work. You skip school. You don't go to church. Like, I mean, it's like, as a pastor in the Northwest, I always hated it when it was sunny on Sunday because I was like, no one's coming to church today. <laughs> but what he's saying here is it's like the rain that gives life. When we moved to Southern California, I loved the sun, but it was after like, what, our eight or nine year drought? You know, the, like you can't keep the grass warm or grass green. You can't, you know, it, air conditioning is just like an exorbitant price, you know, and you're like, a little rain would be kind of nice. <laughs> and my kids grew up in Southern California, so they see the rain much in the same way I see the sun. They see it as this life-giving, incredible thing, and then it rains, and, and like a week later, all your succulents in your garden are just like mm, bursting with life, and flowers are blooming, and the grass is growing. You're getting out and mowing it, and that smell comes in, and, and you're just like, man, that rain brought life. And that's what, that's what David's talking about here. That's another fruit. That's another result of the life living in fear of God is this life, it's just life-giving, like the rain that causes things to sprout forth. Now, this life, you might be wondering, how is this made possible? Okay, we've seen God's standard already, is that those who are on this path are the righteous who are living in the fear of God. Now, when I think about that, I look at my own life, right? And I'm thinking, am I righteous? I mean, are you guys righteous people? Yeah, maybe, right? <laughs> kind of a little bit. <laughs> do you, I mean, do you fear God? I mean, is every moment of your life in, in fear of God? Do you, I mean, you're always walking around mindful of him and your own desires never get in the way. And <laughs> You know, uh, no, we don't live that way. That's not, that's not the norm for us. I mean, there's this tension in the Christian life where we want to live for God, we want to love Him, we want to serve Him, and we, we experience His goodness and grace in our lives, but then simultaneous to that, we can, we can be experiencing forgiveness and then also completely sinning and, and dealing with this dark part of our, our souls also. There's, there's this challenge that we live with, and what this passage says is that if we want to be in this first way, that we've got to be righteous living in the fear of God. So does that mean that when I'm living righteously and I'm living in the fear of God, that I am on the right path, but then suddenly when I start sinning, I switch over to the other path? 
what happens? What's the, what do we do with that? How do we stay on this path? Well, it's made, this path is only made possible by divine will and nature of God, by the divine will and nature of God. You know, he goes on here, he says, for does not my house so stand with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. And I love the idea that here's, here's David, he's lived a life, I mean, I, I suppose on the leadership continuum of great and bad leaders, he's near the top of good leader in the Old Testament at least. We know there's some pretty bad leaders there. But we also know that David's life wasn't all pretty. I mean, there's some things that were written about him that were pretty dark. Things that he confesses that are very dark. Darker than anything I've ever done. You know. So he's writing this, but he's saying, but doesn't my house stand with God? Don't I still stand in this fear and this first way? How can he say this when he knows himself that he's living in rebellion of God? It's because of the covenant of God. He says, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant. This isn't a covenant that just takes place sometime when you're a good boy (laughs) or sometime when, you know, he's feeling like being a nice God. This is a covenant that lasts all the time, has been around since the founding of the earth. And we see the unfolding of God's covenant throughout Scripture. What, what's a covenant? A covenant's an agreement. You know, maybe some of you have lived in a neighborhood that has covenants where, you're like, you know, the association agrees to give you something like, you know, nice sidewalks or whatever, or a swimming pool. And the other, and you make the agreement, the covenant that, yes, I will be able to use the swimming pool if I pay my fees and I keep my lawn mowed. That's like an idea of a covenant. Two groups coming together and making an agreement with one another. Well, here's the thing about God's covenant. God, God promises all these incredible blessings and things, promises he's going to treat his people a certain way. He's going to be their God. They will be his people. And then what does he demand from us, from his people? I didn't hear. I can't hear. Obedience. Yeah. He, he demands perfection, actually. And this isn't like, you know, that you're a pretty good person. God demands complete faithfulness, complete righteousness, perfect justice, and faith. Wow. <laughs> kind of fall short there, don't I? What do we do about that? Well, it's God's covenant is so incredible. Here's, here's how the covenant has unfolded throughout Scripture. It started way back in the Garden of Eden. Okay, where, where God created everything, and he got man and women, and he says to people, he says, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. All this is for you, and I want you to manage it. And that's the first part of the covenant. He gives it to them and asks them to stay faithful to him. First covenant, God, does God stay faithful? He stays completely faithful. Still staying faithful to that covenant to today. We still have dominion. We still manage God's earth. He still gives us an incredible creation. But has God's people stayed, stayed faithful? No. It's like the next chapter of the book after the covenant's made that man just completely fails, like goes back on the covenant. We can't, we can't even look at an apple, and I don't even really like apples, but like we can't even look at an apple and resist it without God, or fruit, I guess, without God, you know, without rebelling against God. We want it so badly for ourselves. 
that we're willing to give up what God has given us for that. And then you go on Noah. You know, remember the story of Noah? You saw that movie with Russell Crowe, that weird movie with Russell Crowe. Um, there was, uh, but you might know the story of Noah, even if you, you haven't grown up in church, that, you know, all the earth, all the people God created were basically the whole world had become rebellious. We think our world is, is rebellious and anti-God. That world was crazy rebellious and anti-God. I mean, every, it says everybody, and that only Noah and his family were, were the righteous ones in the midst of all these evil people. I mean, that sounds terrifying to me. And so you've got Noah, and the way God decides to deal with this problem, problem is by, in his mercy, preserving Noah, but in his judgment, destroying the rest of the earth with a giant flood. And this flood, you can actually read about it in almost every single culture that has, that has a written history or, or a written narrative in the past. They speak about this flood. It's amazing. And we know that God created this flood, and then when uh, everything was destroyed and God preserved Noah, the water subsided. Do you remember what God placed in the sky? He placed the rainbow in the sky. And he says, I'm going to put this rainbow in the sky so that I can remember my covenant with you. God is saying, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to continually remind myself. Every time you see a rainbow, and we see a lot of rainbows in our culture, don't we? It's meant to be a reminder of God's covenant with us. One time I was in Hawaii, I saw a double rainbow. It was amazing. <laughs> Rainbows, and just, just remembering, every time we see it, we remember God's covenant with us, his faithfulness. And when we're remembering, the scripture says that God is also remembering the covenant with his people. Then you go on to Abraham, and Abraham, he, makes, he promises that he will make, Oh, the, the, by the way, the rainbow, God's promise was to never again make a flood like that. He will never destroy the earth like that again. We can, we can rest on that promise. Then Abraham comes along. He, he promises that Abraham is going to become a great nation and name. There's going to be all kinds of descendants going from Abraham. He says, as many, you're going to have as many descendants as there are gra uh, grains of sand on the beach. That's a lot of descendants. And, and God promises that to him. He promises that he's going to be the father of nations, that families are going to be blessed through him, and he promises him land. And then Moses, you know, Moses leads the uh, Israelites out of bondage, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. But he promises Moses, he renews the covenant with, with the leader Moses, that there's going to be a blessing and a curse, and he promises the land also to him, renews this covenant. And then along comes David, who we're talking about today. And he says to David, your name is going to be made great. He renews the whole covenant that he had kept, that had been with his people ever since day one, had never, ever changed. It had, become, it had been the same promise. God had remained faithful, even though people had continued to rebel over and over and over and break the covenant with God. God still kept his end of the deal. And he tells David, I'm going to, again, give you a name and a land, and your house and your line are going to be made great, because through that, I'm going to do something amazing. And you're left kind of wondering, ooh, I wonder what it is. <laughs> what could it be that God's going to do through David? And then you start reading through the prophets, and you get to like Jeremiah. And I, I'm going to read you this because in Jeremiah 31, you read about the covenant. And, and God is going to do something a little new here. Same covenant, same faithfulness, same God. But listen to this. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He says the way my covenant is going to last from now on, I'm going to erase their sin from my memory. I'm going to erase their iniquity. It's going to be gone. You say, okay, wonderful, but I still sin. So did God not follow through? And that's where we keep going here. Because this new covenant, you, you, you read on, you get into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read through those, you'll read all about Jesus and why he was sent to earth when he was born. It says, the, the um, Apostle John in his Gospel says that the Word became flesh. And the Word was with God and the Word was God in the beginning, he says. And he says that Jesus came and Jesus was fully God and fully man. He had two natures completely 100% human and completely 100% God. And this was God's incredible way of showing the utmost of his mercy toward his creation. It was God showing that he still remained true to his covenant, even though we continue to break it over and over and over and over again. He's going to send another human into the world. He himself is going to intervene as a perfect God, give up his rights to divinity, Give up his rights to, to everything to humble himself to become a human and die the death that we deserve. Get the judgment that we deserve for our breaking of the covenant. And Jesus steps into earth and he lives a perfect life. And then he's crucified, paying our penalty. And then what happens is something completely miraculous is Jesus doesn't stay in the grave. He defeats sin and death. It says that on the cross when he died, uh, he bore our sins, and our sins were no more. So that's that prophecy in Jeremiah coming true. And then he rises three days later from the dead, completely defeating it. And it doesn't stop there. I mean, that's not enough. Jesus shows himself to, to people for 40 days on earth, and then he ascends into heaven. And Scripture says that, the, that God, this God-man who humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death at the cross, is now exalted to the highest place. And he sits right now on the right hand of the Father. And his name is praised as the greatest name above all names, above the earth, in the earth, and below the earth. That every single being, no matter where they are, or what their eternity is, is now saying, yeah, that's the greatest name of all. This is where Jesus resides and what happened on the cross is because Jesus bore our sin, and he took our sin, and he killed it. God now follows his word in this new covenant that he now casts our sin and iniquities aside. And now what happens is through faith, we now receive everything that was entitled to Christ. And that ought to blow, blow your mind. That, that we are entitled now, we receive what Christ was entitled to? Because of God's action on our behalf? This is a God to be feared because he's a God of love and mercy toward us. And he's demonstrated that over and over and over again throughout all of history by staying true to his covenant when we haven't. You know, this covenant matters because, um, you know, here it says that his covenant was ordered 
in all things and secure. That's what David says here. You know, that phrase, ordered in all things and secure, was a legal terminology from, you know, these ancient times that you read, you read in other, other areas, other places too. It kind of says this is a binding thing, you know. This is, justice ends here. <laughs> this, is, this is the ultimate goal of justice and God's will is that this covenant would be ordered in all things and it would also be secure. When you think of ordered, some of you, when you came to faith in Christ, it was like a radical change. You experienced that immediate reordering of your thoughts, your, your life, your desires. It was a very instant change. Does anybody, I mean, how many of you have kind of that story? Yeah, a couple of you. I know there's more than that, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> you know, some of us, we grew up in the church. And it's been a process, more of a process. Or those of us who have been in, in faith for a while. We see it unfolding over the, ho- the course of our lives. Is that there, our, our desires and our will and everything that we live for, if we've remained faithful, becomes more and more ordered around the things of God. You know, my, my job right now, I said, is woodworking. And one of the things I get to do right now is I'm, I got a big job I'm working on down at Carlsbad. And it's kind of fun because the guy I'm working for is a friend. I've known him for years. And the job I'm doing, he's a total nerd, so he wants me to basically do all the finished work, build the cabinets and some furniture and things for a custom trim and everything for his study, this dream study that he's wanted. He's an author. And so I get to do this. And he's a nerd, so he loves J.R. Tolkien. And so I'm making it in the style of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. So it's a really fun project. I love it. <laughs> so I'm in there doing all my, my stuff, you know, and, and um, you know, we, we talk a lot as I'm working and um, a lot of times we end the day by going out on the balcony and just talking together for a little while and, um, you know, about things God's doing in our lives and, you know, and, and we dream together. It's, it's kind of cool. The other day I was, you know, filling nail holes, which again, really, real exciting, putting putty in nail holes. <laughs> and he came in, he was telling me about some kind of his life, you know, that he grew up in. He grew up in an extremely difficult situation. Um, he was beaten every day, you know, and it wasn't by his parents. I mean, he had a really good relationship with his mom his whole life, even the, the day she passed away. But it was his older brother that would just beat him to a pulp every day. And he was terrified of his brother. And, you know, I, I looked and I said, well, didn't, didn't your parents, I mean, weren't they there? Didn't they protect you? Like, what, what was the deal with that? And he said, well, my brother, he goes, I can remember, like, going and I'd go to tell my mom, as a little kid, what was happening to me every day, and I can remember one, you know, several times my brother would be back there, like, just, like, doing that, like, if I said something, that I was going to get another beat down, and so his brother, you know, you know, my friend became a Christian when he was, you know, in high school, and has lived for God ever since, you know, he was a missionary in Wales, and planted churches over there, and now he's helping plant churches here in the United States, and um, just a really incredible man with an incredible family, his brother has gone on and kind of followed um, the second path we're going to be talking about, but it's been a way of destruction. You know, he's been involved in all kinds of um, destructive behaviors, you know, addiction, been in and out of prison, hurt other people in the process. He's continued that abusive kind of life and um, has become just like the most staunch atheist, like 
and we're not talking like I, I don't believe in God kind of atheists. We're talking about like I believe in I don't believe in God, and everybody else who does should suffer for it. And the other day when I'm filling my nail holes with putty, I hear my friend in the other room, and he's you know kind of talking on the phone to a guy and going through the book, you know, some passages in Romans together. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, he's a he's a Christian guy, you know, missionary. Of course, he's talking about Romans on the phone. I mean, that's that's what you do. <laughs> At the end of the conversation, he goes, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah, we will. We'll keep talking. We'll do this again tomorrow. I love you. And they, he came walking in. He had this look on his face just like, like something incredible had just happened. And he walks in. He said, I go, who is that? <laughs> he goes, that was, that was my brother. And he said he just came to faith. I go, wait, you're like, how many brothers do you have? <laughs> and he's like, he goes, no, my only brother. And he said that his brother had come to faith and was just like, you know, his whole world was being turned upside down. Everything he believes, everything he thought that he was going through, all that. And it, for the first time ever, really, in his own mind, seeing the goodness of God. And it was just blowing his mind. Um, later, the next week, my friend comes walking in again. He was smiling on his face. He goes, you're not going to believe it. And I'm like, what? What happened now? <laughs> and he goes, my brother who just came to faith, he goes, his son just came to faith. And he goes, and they don't know each other came to faith. <laughs> and, he, and I'm like, oh, man, that's amazing. And so we talked through how that happened. And, you know, Peyton got to be a part of kind of both of those stories. It was really exciting. And, um, and then he, he texted me later that week with, with a screenshot on his phone of a text from his nephew. And it was a picture, it was a meme, of, or a picture, I guess it wasn't a meme exactly, but a picture of um, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader fighting each other with lightsabers. And, he, and if you know anything about Star Wars, like Darth Vader was Luke's father, and they, it's a very dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said, under the picture, he said, um, Uncle, I... I, for my entire life, I've thought this was going to be the rest of my life, this picture, you know, fighting his dad. And he goes, and I just talked to my dad on the phone and found out what happened. And he goes, I don't know what to think, say, or even feel right now. And my friend texted him back and said, man, this is my God who I love, and he does this kind of stuff all the time. You know, and so this is God being faithful to his covenant. And you can pursue all kinds of things. I mean, read through the book of Ecclesiastes. You see a wealthy man who pursued all kinds of things, trying to find meaning and enjoyment in life. He tried living poor. He tried living wealthy. He, I mean, every possible kind of, you know, hedonistic thing you could pursue for your own enjoyment. He tried, and in the end, he said, it's all meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. Pointless. And listen to what he wrote at the end of his book. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. <laughs> there it is. You know, um, he says, God will bring every deed to judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this is secure. It's a secure covenant. that You don't have to wonder if God's going to change his mind. I mean, if thousands and thousands of years of history and God proving himself isn't enough for you, um, I don't. First of all, know what is, but his nature has been shown and proven to be this. That he's going to stick to his side of the covenant. Now, a lot of us, we tend to think that Christ is a means to our goal. We think that if, okay, if I believe in Jesus, 
and I start serving him, then good things are going to happen to me. We even, I mean, there's even some churches that teach this regularly. That, you know, if, if you're a faithful person, you're living, you're going down that path, that things are going to do well for you. You're gonna, you might get rich. You might get everything you want. And if you don't, you better look out. We have a culture that teaches the same thing, I think. But look at what David goes on to say about this. He says, will he not cause to prosper all my help and desire? David says that this is going to happen for those who fear God and love him, that that our desires are going to be met, that we are going to experience a prosperity. However, what what I think we fail to miss is that this is when our desires continue to become more and more God's desires. The more we live into Christ, the more we participate, as Aquinas said, participate in divinity with God, the more union we have with Christ, the more we become like him, the more we want to think the way he thinks, the more we want the things that he wanted. And so then our desires are met. And if you're a believer, if you're a true believer, the Spirit will work in your heart and that will become the reality for you more and more the more you live. Not always perfect, right? I mean, you're not always floating along, you know? But it, it, it will become more and more like that. But it's more, the more we recognize that, that we need God, that that happens, and that we can become like him. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? And this is where the more mature people in their faith, and I've seen this in my ministry, are the ones who learn more and more to cry out for the mercy of God. They're not the ones who are coming and telling, <laughs> telling the preacher usually everything he said wrong, <laughs> which I say a lot of things are wrong, just don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, you know, they're not the people who have the most knowledge a lot of the times. They're not the people who, you know, come walking into church, you know, like Trevor Bauer and thinking they're awesome. <laughs> they're the ones that, more and more learn to cry out for the mercy of God because they recognize that this life and this path is only possible with the mercy of God. And so you see this in the life of David. In the Psalms, he wrote the Psalms. I mean, it says that he's a sweet psalmist of Israel. If you read through the Psalms, you'll read a lot of what David wrote, a lot of his prophecies. He said, I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of living. If you're like me and grew up in the Lutheran church, you know every single Sunday I grew up reciting this. Our help, Psalm 124, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That our help does not come from within ourselves like the world teaches us. There's not some bright spot inside our dark souls that we can somehow in our sinfulness reach into and go, oh, goodness, and start pursuing that on our own power. We can't do that. It's not possible. Try it. It doesn't work. Maybe for a little while, Will, but I, I, I disappoint myself all the time. Totally fine admitting that. Because then all the more, in my weakness, I can, I can reach out to a strong God who I know is perfect and who has taken my place and is all good. So there's the first way. And the second way, and I won't spend as much time on this, is con- the way that's consumed with fire. It's a way that's consumed with fire. 
If the way living in God's covenant, Jesus described as the narrow way, where few would pursue it, but where there's life, he describes the second way as a wide gate that's easy and that leads to destruction and that those who enter it are many. And this is the path that I think our world would have us on. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to men, but it ends in death. (laughs) So we pursue the narrow path. This passage in Samuel ends this way. It says, worthless men, but worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with a hand. And the man who touches them arms himself with iron and shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. My Growing up working construction with my dad, I remember the first house I got to build on my own. I built it when I was 20 years old, and then we moved into it once we got married, and we were 21, young. Um, But in order to build this house, we had to clear this huge lot, because we were building several different houses, duplexes on this lot, and there were all these thorn bushes that were growing on this lot. Some of the thorns were like that long, I mean, just, and they would not go away. Even when we came in with a bulldozer and plowed them out of there, we'd still be walking along, all of a sudden, (laughs) you step on a thorn, through your shoe into your foot. Not pleasant. <laughs> so what we had to do in order to get rid of these thorns that were destructive and were causing pain and um, were not helping us in our ultimate goal of building this house was we had to actually burn them. We, had to, we burned the entire lot down. It was awesome. <laughs> I mean, I like fire. I think it's cool. But like, I mean, we burned this. And then all the, all the thorns turned to ash and they didn't cause us any more problems. They were gone, completely obliterated by it by fire. And this is the way God describes these worthless men, worthless people, people who are unable or unwilling to attain to his standard of perfection, which in and of ourselves, apart from the mercy of God, is exactly where we, what we deserve and where we're heading. It just makes sense. That fire is the end result Burning thorns are often used in the Old Testament as a picture of God's judgment. They cause pain and then they're discarded. So here comes the hard truth of this sermon. You have no destiny beyond either union or separation from God. That's the truth. Those are the two choices, the two ways. Heard a great quote that sums this up from C.S. Lewis this last week. He said, I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully that all are going to be saved. But then my reason retorts, without their will or with it. If I say without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. How can the at once voluntary act of surrender be involuntary? And if I say with their will, then my reason replies, how if they will not give in? There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All are in hell, who that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, the door is opened. Are you knocking at the door? Are you pursuing Christ? Has by God's mercy and the power of his spirit put inside of you any desire to pursue him. Take that and run with it. He wants to empower you to do this. 
Because the second way, you know, the first way is made possible by divine will and nature, and we can participate in that. The second way is made possible because of our human will and our human nature. So we need something so far beyond our human will and nature to help us in this. And Christ preached this over and over again, that the way into his kingdom is through repentance and belief. It's by the words of our mouth, Romans says, that we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has risen from the dead. And that's where we find the salvation of this covenant with God. St. Athanasius said, the Son of God became man that we might become God. And the, the second God part, us becoming God, isn't like we become God. It's a lowercase g. It's the idea that we get to, because of what Christ has done, we now can participate with him in this divinity. So your worthiness is only as much as where it's placed in the end. Where are you placing your worthiness? Is it in the worth, worthlessness of our own humanity or is it in the worthwhileness of Christ. Let's pray. And Lord, I'm reminded of um, the two stories you told that get at this. Um, reminded of blind Bartimaeus who was pursuing you because he knew that you could heal him. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people told him to be quiet and he kept all the more loudly saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I think about the story you told about the tax collector, the evil, hated tax collector, and the Pharisee who thought he was holy, both standing in a courtyard and praying. And the self-righteous Pharisee was praying to you, thanking you of how great you created him to be and how he wasn't like the sinful man who was the tax collector but the tax collector was sitting and beat his breast and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Lord, we thank you for the example of, of your church since its early days of combined these two prayers and, and prayed to you repeatedly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner, for you alone are worthy. God, that could be our prayer this morning. So we come to you recognizing that we need your help recognizing that this path is so far beyond us and we, we pray to you, Lord, have mercy on us, a sinner, for you are worthy. Realign our lives and our hearts that way. We thank you that you've been faithful throughout history to your covenant. And Lord, we thank you because of the work of Christ on the cross that now we can finally be faithful to that covenant and be in your good graces. We love you, Lord, and we want to live for you on the basis of that. 